Hello and welcome to History 256. Um, hi everybody, this is going to be our usual Tuesday lecture, what would have been our Tuesday lecture. Uh, I'll give you a second right now to go on Moodle and check out the PowerPoint. It's called World War II Isolationism to Intervention. So I'll give you a second to go and uh, get that PowerPoint. Okay, cool. Hi everybody. So if you look over, uh, today's going to be a day where there's not too much PowerPointy. Uh, slides, but I'll be talking quite a bit, so let's take a look at it. Okay, so uh, if you go over one slide, you'll see uh, some fun I might try for a while during this whole quarantine thing. It's the Corgi picture of a day. Look, it's my Corgi. That's Heracles Mulligan. Uh, she is wearing her little hot dog costume. Actually, she is not in my lap right now. My wife's dog, who's a Dotson, uh, is in my lap right now, so eh, go for that. So Anyway, let's get going. So last class, we talked a lot about the dictators, the three dictators who kind of took over these various areas. Just wanted to know some of the important personalities before we get into World War II. Uh, we got, last time we had Franco, we had Mussolini, and we had Hitler. A couple other personalities I want you to know about. If you go over one, this is Hideki Tojo. Hideki Tojo was the Prime Minister of Japan. Um, he's got kind of a long history. He actually trained, uh, his military training was actually done in Germany. That's one of the reasons why, um, the Japanese ally with Germany during World War II is because they have a long history together when it comes to military. Um, back when Japan was trying to westernize or modernize, whatever you want to call it, uh, it decided to do it on its own terms. Japan was famously not colonized by a foreign power. Pretty much, it decided they were going to do that themselves. So what they were able to do was they were able to look around the entirety of Europe and base various elements on whatever they thought was the most effective. So, for instance, they used, they modeled their navy after the British Navy. Uh, they modeled their parliament after the German parliament. Uh, they modeled their army after the German army. Uh, they didn't really model too much after America. I guess the closest you might get is their education system, particularly their university system. Uh, but remember, America was a B-tier country this time period, so not really too much to model itself after. Uh, that's one thing I thought was hilarious about the that. <laughs> okay, this movie probably came out when you were bored. It was called The Last Samurai, starring Tom Cruise, which is problem problematic in itself. But the idea that the Japanese would look to American military advisors was humorous. They would not have gone American. They would have gone German, which they actually did. So Tojo trained in Germany. Um, that's kind of his background. Uh, he becomes prime minister. He's actually a lot more expansionist than the uh, previous holders of the office. Uh, Japan has got a history in this time period of being disrespected. They feel like they are not held up as in high esteem as the other Western powers. They consider themselves Western. They consider themselves modern. They consider themselves a step above places like Asia and um, the other areas that are being colonized by Europe. And Tojo plays into this. Now, Tojo is not the leader of Japan. Um, the leader of Japan is the emperor. Emperor Hirohito this time period. He's a little young in this time period, actually. Uh, the Emperor is somebody who is theoretically in charge of Japan, but it uh, really goes more to the Prime Ministers. It's not unusual. A lot of monarchies have that now, where you have, like, theoretically the head of state, but the Prime Minister is the one with the power. What is interesting about Tojo is that he is a lot more vilified in the U.S. If you look over one slide, you'll see some uh, propaganda. 
And on the left, you'll see the propaganda of Tojo, which I'm not going to read aloud because it's really racist. Um, <laughs> they show Tojo as some sort of buck tooth with fangs. They use the English for it, very happy. Um, yeah. Uh, or to the right, you have something of Hirohito. He looks like an individual. He looks a little scary, perhaps, you know, with the bombers behind him, but he looks like an individual. Now, it is a misnomer to say the Japanese worship the emperor. They didn't really worship the emperor, per se. They didn't believe that he was a god inherently. That's something you're going to hear, a misnomer that other people might have told you over the years, is that the Japanese worshiped the emperor, or they thought he was a god. Uh, they didn't think he was a god. They revered him because they thought he was descendant of a god. Uh, the way that the Japanese monarchy works, which, by the way, the Japanese monarchy is one of the oldest longest monarchies out there. They don't think the emperor himself is divine, but they believe his like great 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 like add fifty generations of great grandfather was a god. So he's not a god, he's got God DNA. still reverence of the emperor was something that was really, really highly pushed. So that's Tojo. he is kind of the the point man for Japan in this time period. You don't hear too much about the Emperor. I mean, yes, the Emperor is the one who does the surrendering later. Oh, yeah, spoiler alert. Um, Japan loses World War II. The U.S. wins it. But uh, we'll get into that in a little bit. All right, if you go over one more slide, you'll see Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill doing the V for victory sign. He is the Prime Minister of England during this time period. Uh, Winston Churchill was born into a very, well, not very upper class, uh, Okay, in this time period, there was something interesting going on with some of the British royal families. Uh, noble families. He's not a royal. He's not a royal, but he's a noble family. A lot of them had the name, but no money. Winston's Churchill's father, uh, Lord Churchill. I, oh, God, I blinked out his name completely. Let's just call him Lord Churchill. Uh, Winston Churchill's father was a came from an old family, but his family was going through hard times financially. They don't have a lot of money. And so it's not unusual in this time period for British families who have, like, the name but no money to marry their sons off to American women who have the money and no name. Basically, the idea is that they are the children of industrialists who, you know, have made billions upon billions of dollars and they want to, you know, buy something they can't otherwise get by nobility. Now, this is not too unusual. For instance, if you ever seen the show Downton Abbey, which... I think we established in this class three of y'all have, so three of y'all seen Downton Abbey, but maybe the other people listening to out this in the podcast world. Uh, in Downton Abbey, one of the main conceits of the show is that the mother, Cora, is American, and the father, Lord Grantham, is British. And it's another one of these marriages, where it's basically the, the man has the, the title but no money, and the woman has the money and no title. Now, Winston Churchill's family is no different. Um, in fact, it's been said that he, his family was rich compared to normal people, but kind of poor compared to rich people. Uh, his parents were kind of socialite-ish. Uh, they, they never took things too seriously. They, they, they spent globs of money. They're always deeply in debt. Uh, Churchill has a traditional English childhood, you know, boarding schools, parents being absentee. Maybe seeing his mom or dad for an hour each night, if, if, it's, a, if it's a very affectionate family, I suppose. Uh, when he comes of age, he becomes a soldier. Uh, he becomes a soldier, and he serves all over the British Empire. Remember, this time period, 
the uh, the proverbial sun never set on the British Empire. So he's able to serve all over the place. Serves in India for a while. Serves in uh, South Africa. He's got a fairly famous account of uh, what happens when they fight the Zulus. Whenever the uh, the English fight the Zulus. Also, I believe he does some action at Khartoum. Where he writes another report. And so he, he serves all over. He gets to know the Empire pretty well. He also starts getting known as a writer. Uh, when he comes back home to uh, England, he serves a number of various political offices. Uh, eventually he becomes Prime Minister. He is Prime Minister after Neville Chamberlain, who we're going to talk about in a little bit. Uh, whenever Hitler is rising up, uh, Churchill is the one warning everybody, hey, this Hitler dude is kind of scary. Maybe we should worry about him. Now, of course, as always, I'll tell you the fun, juicy bits of history. Uh, Winston Churchill is known for his wit. He's known for his speaking ability. He gives a lot of uh, very famous speeches during the war, kind of raise English morale. But what y'all care about is the funny bits of Winston Churchill being just totally hilarious. So, let's see. Um, okay, probably the most famous of these stories is one time Winston Churchill's at a dinner party, and he, he loved his whiskey, he loved his cigars, he was known for liking alcohol quite a bit. And so basically this, this, you know, this proper English lady comes up to him and is like, Mr. Churchill, you are drunk. You are very drunk. You are the drunkest person I've ever seen in my life. To which Churchill takes a puff on his cigar and responds, Woman, you are ugly. You are very ugly. You might be the ugliest woman I've ever seen in my entire life, but at least in the morning, I'll be sober. <laughs> yeah, Winston Churchill. Uh, another one. So there's another one of these English parties. Apparently he just, like, goes out of English dames. So, okay. So, you know, upper-class British woman is like, Mr. Churchill, I'll, I'll stop the accent, but Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I would put, uh, ah, let, let me start over again. Mr. Churchill, if you were my husband, I would put poison in your tea. To which Churchill replies, Madam, if you were my wife, I would drink it. So that's Winston Churchill. He's a fun guy. And that pretty much does it for the personalities I want you to know about uh, World War II. So we got FDR, who we've talked about extensively, doing stuff with the Great Depression. We got Franco, who's important to understand for Spain, just another fascist. He keeps Spain out of World War II. We got Mussolini, who's been ruling Italy since 22. So by the time we get to the 30s and 40s, he's been around for a while. And he got Hitler, who's really making moves in Germany. Last time we talked, he had just been elected uh, Chancellor of Germany. Tojo, Prime Minister of Japan. And finally, Winston Churchill, soon to be Prime Minister of England. So let's get going. So, the main topic I'm going to be talking about is how the U.S. goes from isolation to intervention. You know, not only does how did this war start, but it's how does the U.S. go from being strongly isolationist, strongly let's not be in this war, to, okay, we're in this war now. So let's go back a little bit. Uh, in 1933, FDR officially recognizes the Soviet Union, which broke from his Republican predecessors. Uh, the idea being, you know, the, the Soviets had taken over, they killed the Tsar, they'd done all sorts of horrible things. Uh, the Republican presidents did not recognize it. They did not think that it was a legitimate government. Uh, they did not think that it was uh, something they should really be dealing with. They thought it was a bunch of insurgents. They didn't officially recognize its legitimacy. That's something that governments have to do from time to time. If a new power takes over a country, if there's a revolution, uh, establishing diplomatic relationships can be an issue. 
if you don't believe that they are legit. And so his Republican predecessors, you know, your Coolidge's, your Hoover's, your, um, your Warren G. Harding's, they don't recognize the Soviet Union, meaning they don't trade with the Soviet Union. Now, like Woodrow Wilson, FDR does not have a lot of foreign policy experience. Uh, he'd been governor of New York. He hadn't really done too, too much with foreign policy. And so he, his main reason, his main justification for saying why he recognizes the Soviet Union is for purposes of trade. It says, hey, we're in the Depression. We should not be cutting off uh, potential customers. The Soviet Union has a huge population. If you look at a map, the Soviet Union is a very large country, just in landmass, and it's got a very large population, too. And he says, hey, the Soviet Union, they're, they're hurting just like anybody else. Uh, remember, in, in America, the problem was not a lack of materials. It was an abundance of supplies. Nobody had money. And so it's like, hey, if we can sell stuff to the Soviet Union, why not? Now, this action made absolutely nobody happy. Nobody happy. Pretty much, it was pretty damning to his career. Now, granted, it's 1933. The country's more concerned about the Depression. But still, foreign policy-wise, a lot of people don't like this. And FDR is viewed as a screw-up for this. How big of a screw-up, you might ask? Okay, you know how bad FDR screwed up? You know how bad nobody liked this? Guess who calls him up to chew him out? For recognizes the Soviet Union. I'll give you a second. Who would be the worst person to call up FDR and say, dude, you screwed up? Probably thinking maybe Herbert Hoover, you know, maybe maybe Calvin Coolidge, who's, I think he's dead by this point. Coolidge doesn't live that long after he's president. Uh, no, you're wrong. Uh, his mother. Yes, his mother. Do you know how bad you have to screw up for your mother to call you up and be like, yo, you screwed up, particularly if you're president of the United States. Can you even imagine just a president taking a call from his mom and like all of a sudden his mom's like, you did this horror for foreign policy thing. So yeesh. Uh, the other thing that FDR does in foreign policy is the good neighbor policy, the good neighbor policy. Now the good neighbor policy is a continuation of something that Hoover was doing. Uh, that FDR really makes a little bit more formal. Uh, basically, the good neighbor policy has to do with Latin American countries, Western Hemisphere countries, kind of his own version of the, uh, you know, something like the Monroe Doctrine or the Roosevelt Colliery. Oh, gosh, I shouldn't say Roosevelt Colliery because it might confuse you. Uh, other Roosevelt. Uh, basically, it says that no nation has the right to interfere in the internal or external affairs of another. The idea being that the U.S. is doubling down on isolationism when it comes to Latin American countries. Now, remember, since the time of Wilson, uh, actually Taft, if you want to get really particular, U.S. troops had been in Latin American countries, mainly to protect U.S. business interests. That had been the case for a while now. However, because of the Depression and stuff, FDR says, you know, we don't need to do that. It's just a, it's just a waste of resources. Uh, FDR removes troops from Nicaragua, uh, removes them from Haiti, also starts new negotiations with Cuba. Now, this has been a change since before World War I. Before World War I, the U.S. had been putting troops in Latin American countries to protect U.S. business interests. FDR says, not needed, let's just focus domestically. And this seems to be a signal that the U.S. is going to be more domestic. You know, the depression's going on, let's not worry about the affairs of the world, let's hunker down on isolationism. Now, that seems to be doing okay, except what happens 
overseas. Let's talk about what happens in Asia. Now, the war, like I said, we're not getting too much into the U.S.'s fighting of the war, but we're going to talk about how the war begins. Uh, the deal is with Japan. Japan had getting, been getting pretty imperialistic and increasingly powerful, particularly against China. Uh, Japan, remember, it considered itself a Western nation. It considered itself one of the good, strong nations. A um, couple of things you might want to know about very quickly. I'm not going to quiz you on all these, but yeah, there's something nice to know. Uh, for instance, in 1849, it wins the Sino-Japanese War, which makes, gets control over Korea. Uh, Japan had occupies Korea for quite a while. Uh, that's one of the reasons why Korea and Japan kind of on dicey terms, even to this day. Um, for instance, North Korea, Kim Jong-un, well, Kim Jong-il, Kim Il-sung is the main one. He basically, one of the reasons he able, he's able to get into power is that he says, I'm going to protect Korea against the Japanese because the Japanese are pretty brutal in their occupation of Korea. Um... I'm not going to talk about that too much today, but uh, maybe some other time, maybe maybe on a separate podcast. I'll just talk about how Japan's been brutal to Korea over the years. Uh, Japan really jumps into the national stage in 1904 with the Russo-Japanese War. Uh, it's a war, as you can tell with the, with the uh, as from the name, of a war between Russia and Japan. And what's unusual in this war, not unusual, but unexpected, is that Japan wipes the floor with Russia. Yeah, it was negotiated by uh, Teddy Roosevelt to be a truce, uh, where basically Japan got some land. They really wanted Manchuria, but they weren't able to get it. However, it shows that Japan has now beaten a strong Western power, you know, a, a European power, a, one of the main powers. Uh, some have said the, the fault from the Russo-Japanese War is one of the reasons why the Tsar actually fell, because, you know, Russia looks weak and spending way too much money. Now, like the other countries, like the other countries, uh, like Italy and Germany, Japan also felt disrespected by the Treaty of Versailles. Uh, Japan was also on the Allies' side during the World War I. During the Great War, Japan was on the same side with Britain and France and America and stuff. And so, you know, they go to the negotiating table saying they want stuff just like Italy did. Remember, Italy, they switched sides midway through the war, so that makes sense why they didn't get anything. Uh, Japan had been on the side of the Allies throughout the entire war. And so Japan goes to the Treaty of Versailles wanting stuff. They want, they want things. They want, they want to be, you know, they want to get a proper seat at the table, and they get nothing. They get nothing, and they feel very disrespected. And not only that, they really feel disrespected by the Five Naval Power, uh, the Five Power Naval Limitation Treaty. Aye. Okay, let me explain this one very quick. Okay, so after World War One, nobody wants another world war. After the Great War, nobody wants another war. So they start doing all these agreements to make it that there won't be another war. Now, one of this has to do with uh, navies. The idea being that. Um, they don't want any one country to really build up its navy too, too much. And so the five-power naval limitation treaty basically said that countries with larger navies could build in proportion to other countries. Uh, basically, there are five countries that band together. They said basically for every one new battleship uh, Japan brings, Britain can build three and America can build two. Those aren't the exact numbers. I'm just giving you an example. Uh, the idea that they want to keep the proportion of naval strength the same. And it's not a one-to-one -one thing. It's not like 
hey, Japan built five new ships, so uh, America can build five new ships. No, they want to keep the proportions the same. So basically, Japan couldn't build that many new warships. Now, this is important for Japan because Japan is a island nation. And navies are very important if you're islands. If you're on an island, you definitely need a navy. Also, Japan doesn't have a ton of natural resources, which we need to uh, get, get into that. So, Japan breaks the treaty. Uh, Japan breaks the treaty in 1936. They're not the only one. Germany also breaks the treaty. And basically, they want to they want to pursue parity with Britain and the U.S. when it comes to the size of their navy. Remember, it's still the Depression. Uh, Britain and the U.S. are not really that interested in building new navy ships. Um, and Japan wants to build a ton of navy ships. They're getting a lot more expansionist. It looks like they're going to be taking over stuff. Now, by breaking the treaty, they should be getting all sorts of reparations, not reparations, but like there should be repercussions, there should be military action. However, the U.S. and England are not too interested in doing it. And uh, let me go on a little bit back. Uh, the aggression against China happens for a little bit. If you go over one more slide. Uh, the 1930s, uh, basically, civilians lose control over the government. Uh, basically, there's a new slate of more military people like Tojo who voted in. Uh, thanks in large part to the Depression. That's not unusual. And in time, a hard time. You might want to have the military come in and take control, or the idea that a military leader might be somebody good for the country. So that's what happens here. And the military is promising that they're going to expand because Japan needs resources, uh, particularly lumber. And there's one place that really wants. Japan really wants Manchuria. Now, I don't have a map of these slides. I wish I had a map of these slides. I wish I did. Manchuria is right across. It's the northeastern section of uh, China. Fairly heavily wood, heavily forested. It's got a lot of natural resources that Japan would really, really like. And so in 1937, if you want to have the exact date, on July 7th, 1937, Japan starts a full-scale yet undeclared war in northern China. Uh, July 7th, 1937, Japan and China battle on the Marco Polo Bridge, which is just west of Beijing. Uh, their full-scale war happens shortly thereafter. And it's an undeclared war. It's an undeclared war, but it's clearly a war. Japan is clearly doing stuff in China. They're clearly attacking the Chinese, clearly fighting the Chinese. By the way, uh, China is the U.S.'s ally. Uh, Chiang Kai-shek leads the Chinese nationalists in this time period. And they're definitely a U.S. ally. The U.S. was heavily invested in getting China open. Remember, there's a billion-plus consumers there. And so everybody knows stuff is going on. And so that's kind of the issue here. War's going on. It's undeclared, but it's full-scale. And when the capital city of Manchuria, it's a city called Nanking, uh, when it falls in December, on December 13th of 1937, uh something really bad happens. Really bad. Uh, the Japanese army is not given orders for a couple weeks. For a couple weeks, uh, there's six weeks or so of basically really, really, really bad stuff happening in Nanking. Uh, if you go over one slide, this is actually in Shanghai. Uh, the Japanese... <coughs> and the dogs are barking! That's the Dotson barking. Corgi's running around. Sorry. 
Uh, as you can see, the Japanese have bombed Shanghai. It's pretty bad. The Rape of Nanking is even worse, though. Now, the Rape of Nanking is still a very, very contentious topic. There are no really good numbers for it. I've heard numbers as high as a million. I've heard numbers as low as a couple, 10,000. What we do know is maybe 300,000 Chinese people were killed. Uh, rape is not just a... It's a it's an apt descriptor here. About 20,000 women were raped. Definitely underreported. Uh, usually in history, rapes are very underreported. People are kind of hesitant to report rapes. Uh, it's it's bad. Uh, the idea that just you have undisciplined soldiers who are not given direct orders for six weeks. Uh, there's a breakdown of discipline. There's a breakdown of like law and order. The soldiers are doing really horrible things. Uh, the Japanese army in World War II is known for being pretty brutal. Uh, just in general, to prisoners, uh, to women as well. You have comfort women and things like that I'm not going to get into. It's bad. It's really bad. One American who was in Nanking at this time, he was a journalist, he wrote, I just this quote is just really powerful. There is probably no crime that has not been committed in this city today. Today. And that's really where we're going to stop right now with Japan. With Japan, uh, that's kind of the, the stop there. So let's go over to Europe. Um, Europe reinstitutes conscription as, after he becomes chancellor. Now, this is a uh, kind of a no no. <laughs> uh, according to the Treaty of Versailles, uh, Germany is not supposed to have an army. Germany is not supposed to have a military at all. However, Hitler's able to get away with it, mainly because the other countries in Europe don't want another war. They know they can't allow Germany to do this. They don't want Germany to get too strong to have another world war, but they don't want to fight and prevent it that strongly. Uh, there's even some talk in Britain, and particularly in France, that, hey, maybe if Germany builds up an army, they'll help their economy get up and we can get paid better. Remember, Germany's going through massive massive inflation and things like that. And so there's, plus there's no real threat of Germany taking over. They think Germany is fairly weak. They think Germany is going to be able to be taken out pretty quick if they ever do get too strong. And so um, in 1936-35 Hitler takes the Rhineland. If you go over two slides you'll see a map. Actually, let's look at this map for a second. Uh, you'll see a map of uh, Germany, what all Germany takes. The Rhineland, if you look, it's to the west. It's an area between France and Germany. It's, it's striped. It has a little thing that says Rhineland. Now, the Rhineland had been part of Germany, but it had been given over to France during World War I, during the repercussions after the Treaty of Versailles. Um, it's given over to France. The people there speak German. It's pretty much German. It, it, it's a German area. And so, basically, Hitler is able to reoccupy it. And that is a bluff. It's a bluff. Uh, Hitler pretends that his military is strong. He, he dares threat uh, France to fight it. France does not want to fight. Uh, France just really isn't interested. They were devastated by World War I. They're not really interested to do it. 
Uh, also in 36, uh, Hitler purges a lot of his military, and uh, the SS comes up. The SS is Hitler's kind of their the predecessor. Their their predecessors were the brown shirts. They're kind of his, you know, it's, it's SS stormtroopers, whatever you want to call it. Like I said, ask Doctor Wilson for more about that. He's written extensively on the topic. Now, the kind of the one that gets people a little more worried is in 1937. Uh, Italy and Germany and Japan officially formed the Axis. Now, according to the Treaty of Versailles, Germany was not allowed to make any military alliances. Now, Germany and Italy say they're in this alliance, along with Japan, uh, against the Soviet Union. Uh, there is fear of communists. Remember, uh, Hitler comes into power because of the fear of communists. Mussolini comes into power because of fear of the communists. Japan has no real fear of communists, but the communists are everybody's boogeyman in this time period. And so Germany and Italy are able to justify this by saying, hey, we're afraid of communists. We want to make sure that if the Soviet Union gets too large, we can fight them. Now, this makes the rest of Europe kind of sit up a little bit, but they don't really want to get fighting. Uh, the analogy I usually use in my class is imagine your mom has just come in after work. It's been a really long day. She's tired, and she just wants to take a nap on the couch. And she says, you kids, don't make me get up. You know, don't make so much noise, Mama wants to lie down. And so you might make some noise, and basically Mama yells, I really don't want to get up. She might make threats, but she doesn't want to get up. She's tired. That's kind of how Europe is after World War I. Now, what's a little bit more frightening is in 1938, in March of 38, Hitler asked for a Auschwitz, a union, with Austria. Uh, an Auschwitz just means union. It's almost like a marriage. And if you look at the map, if you go back down, if you go over to... Uh, Austria is to the south of Germany. Uh, they don't... <laughs> Hitler is from Austria. Hitler claims that, you know, it's, it's part of Germany anyway. We should have a union. You know, we, we're pretty much the same culture. Austria really claims to be part of German culture. Uh, the German language is spoken extensively in Austria. Hitler claims, you know what, we should get this. And if you notice the little stripes, it makes kind of a weird curve pattern around Czechoslovakia. Don't worry about that quite yet. Hitler says, I just want a union. We need Liebenspass, living space. And so France and England are terrified. And they want appeasement. They don't want another world war. More than anything, nobody wants a world war. And so they negotiate with Germany. They negotiate with Hitler. Uh, basically, they want to make sure he doesn't do anything. They want to make sure he doesn't do anything. And during this conference, during the Munich conference, Hitler adds uh, the Sudetenland. If you look at the map, uh, the Sudetenland kind of wraps around Czechoslovakia. He says we also need that. Uh, he says we just need more living space. Uh, Germany and England add that. Sorry, England and France are able to add this. By the way, they don't tell the Czech people about this. Uh, the Czechs are like, "Wait, what? We're, we're, we're part of Germany now." And then Hitler's like, "No, if you give me this, I will never invade anything. I'll be happy. This is all the land I need." And so England and France make him promise, Hitler, you never ask for anything else. And this is in September of 1938. Uh, Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain, is the Prime Minister of England during this time period. He prom he says, he gives a very infamous speech where he says, hey, we have secured peace for our time, 
in that we've negotiated with Hitler. He's saying, guys, we've done it. There won't be another world war. Hitler has promised never to get anything ever again. And this is, this lands like a let, wet thud. Uh, Winston Churchill, even though he's not prime minister, almost immediately starts writing, hey, we need to build up our military now because Hitler's going to take more stuff. You can't negotiate with a madman. He, he's a crazy person. He's going to want more stuff. And particularly they look and say he's going to want the western part of Czechoslovakia, which just kind of make it all together, uh, which he does. On March of 1939, Hitler invades the rest of Czechoslovakia. Uh, when this happens, uh, Winston Churchill, who's starting to become prime minister, he says pretty much there's going to be another war. It's inevitable. He says that England and France are total failures. Neville Chamberlain needs to be shamed out of existence. Uh, there's going to be another war. It's going to come. It's going to come soon. And if you look at the map, you're going to see, wow, there's some territory that England, that, Amer uh, that Germany might totally take. Uh, if you notice on the map, you have East Prussia separated by Poland. And there's a real, I mean, look, you, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that, you know, Hitler might want to unify East Prussia, which is part of Germany, and Germany without, like, you know, Poland there, right? And so, um, yeah, it looks like something's going to happen there. So just keep that in mind. Um, I should also talk about what's going on in America at this time period. In response to all this, the response of most Americans is all the same. Uh, stay the F out of this one. Uh, basically, Americans are hearing what's going on in uh, Asia. They're hearing what's going on in Europe. They're like, you know what? There might be another world war. We want none of it. Uh, isolationism is the, the key to all this. Uh, an isolationist politician said, quote, to hell, to hell with Europe and the rest of those nations. Uh, this time period, there's also a Senate inquiry about um, World War I, and basically it finds that bankers and munitions makers had made a ton of money from World War I. Basically, people had made a ton of money off of World War I, so there's this new kind of sentiment across the country that America do, got into World War I not because of the Zimmerman telegram or the Lusitania or U-boats, but because of these quote-unquote merchants of death. The idea that people are profiting off of warfare, merchants of death, and so most of the country is happy not to get involved in the war. Now, FDR also gets into this mindset. Uh, he signs the Neutrality Act of 1935. It said that basically Americans could not travel on ships owned by nations at war. Uh, I guess they want to they prevent a repeat of the um, Lusitania business. It also forbade selling munitions or arms to any nations at war. Once again, this whole merchants of death inquiry really freaked people out. Another act in 1936 made it illegal for banks to loan money to nations at war. Uh, remember how we talked about the difference between money given in World War One? You know, several billion dollars to a couple million dollars. So the idea that bankers are giving money to nations at war... Now America's invested in making sure that side wins. Uh, when the Spanish Civil War comes about, uh, FDR says we can't get involved. He says it's a civil war, and because it's a civil war, we have no business getting involved. However, he does later call this a mistake. After Hitler and Mussolini are both arming Franco, 
Uh, France, Britain, and England and uh, America are all staying neutral in this one. It's uh, yeesh. However, however, things change. By 1937, it's looking at wars going available. And although the president and a lot of America wants to stay neutral, there is a sentiment that maybe we can make some money. The, the problem with World War I wasn't that we, we were selling to countries. We were loaning money to countries. That was the problem. We were loaning money. So if we were just selling stuff to people, it's okay. But when we loan money, that's when we get invested. And so the Neutrality Act says, hey, nations at war could buy stuff that's not arms and munitions. We're not, you know, we're not weapons dealers. We're not gun runners. But if they want to buy, you know, food or, or medicine or, or army uniforms, and the Dotson is climbing over me. Sorry, she is getting tangled in the microphone. Are you okay, Molly? Hey, Molly. Sorry. Uh, you know, nations at war could buy supplies that aren't guns, on what's called a cash-and-carry basis. Basically, don't loan money. And also, we're not going to ship it to you. If a country wants to come over with its own ship and pay cash, that's just good business opportunity, and America should do that. So that's cash-and-carry. That kind of becomes the name of the day. I believe that it would preserve profits while preventing us getting into another war. Remember, it's still the Great Depression. People want to make money somehow. Now, these laws are being very tested in China. Now, there was no declared war between China and Japan. That's very important. Because the law said we couldn't give money or supplies or lend money to a nation at war. But China wasn't officially at war. It was clearly at war, but it wasn't a declared war. So FDR is able to supply China, who is our friend and trading partner. Now, this is really tested in December 12, 1937, when the Japanese sink a U.S. ship, uh, the Panay, which would have been the Yangtze River. Basically, the U.S. military had stuff in China. Now, I bet you're wondering, wait, 1937, the Japanese attack U.S. Navy? Wait, well, I thought that was in Pearl Harbor in 39. No, the Japanese actually do it first in China. And the U.S. response to this is very interesting. Because I'm sure you've heard stories about... Uh, Pearl Harbor. Did I say Pearl Harbor was 39? Oh, God, I'm tired. 1941. Uh, I bet you're wondering, wait, like, Pearl Harbor was a big deal. Like, it was a really big deal. They made that horrible Ben Affleck movie out of it. You're right, they did. But the main response to what happens with the Panay is basically America's like, what the heck are we doing in China? We should get out of China. I didn't know we had people in China. Uh, FDR's response to all this is we need to quarantine the aggressors. Oh, quarantine. That's ironic. Uh, as an international community. The idea that we need to stop these big, scary you know, countries from invading and doing stuff. He knows that war is probably going to happen, uh, but America's not having none of that. They want to pretend that war is not going to happen. So by late 1938 and early 1939, it's pretty much clear to everybody, oh, by the way, we can go over one slide, that there's going to be another war due to the quote-unquote madmen who, quote, respect force and force alone. Everybody knows that a war is coming. England and France uh, now say that appeasement is not going to stop Hitler. And they say basically if Belgium, Holland, Switzerland, and particularly Poland ever get invaded by Germany, they will declare war on Germany. Now, like I said, if you go back to that map, you're going to see that Poland is clearly the next place to be invaded. However, Poland... 
butts up against the USSR, who at this time is led by an individual who I've not talked about before because I'm afraid of him. His name is Joseph Stalin, the genocidal homicidal maniac Joseph Stalin. Uh, Stalin had taken over the uh, the Communist Party. He'd taken over the Soviet Union. Uh, after after Lenin died, there's a little bit of a, you know, he, with him and Trotsky, uh, Stalin killed everybody. Like, Stalin, Stalin kills. Stalin, Stalin kills a lot of people. Like, yeesh. Stalin is not a very nice person. We'll talk more about Stalin later, but he is not a good person. He's a communist. And he's probably the only person that Hitler is afraid of, because Stalin will kill anybody. Like... Oh, God, I'm not saying who's worse, Hitler or Stalin. They're both bad. It's like choosing between cancer and AIDS, you know? Like, it, it's bad. Just, they're, they're both awful. But even Hitler's like, man, that Stalin guy's crazy. He's like, you know, if I do anything that's viewed as too aggressive against Stalin, like invading Poland, Stalin might attack me. He's a crazy communist. I said a lot of bad, thi- bad things about communists over the years. And Hitler's whole political career is based on the idea that he is Mr. Anti-Communism. However, in secret, he's okay with dealing with, uh, with Stalin, mainly because he's scared of Stalin. And so basically, Hitler says, hey, Joe, uh, how you doing? We're going to sign a non-aggression pact. Basically, Germany and Russia won't go to war with each other. But, you know, we're never going to invade Poland. But if we do invade Poland, it's nothing against Russia. We're not being aggressive against Russia. In fact, just to prove it, Russia, you can take over Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, which are on the coast there. Now, this is if and only if Germany invades Poland, which Hitler's like, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. It's, it's never going to happen, but in the unlikely event it does happen, you can take these three countries. When you have a deal like this, with this sort of contingency, it's definitely going to happen. It's like, hey man, I'm not going to rob your neighbor's house, but if I do rob your neighbor's house, you can invade these other houses. Or, like, you tell your girlfriend, I'm never going to cheat on you, but if I do, it's going to be with Susan, and you can cheat on me with Mark. Like, it's just clearly you're setting itself up. And so not even, like, basically a week and a half, not even a week and a half after this is done with, uh, Germany invades Poland on September 1st, 1939. Uh, this is not a surprise. Germany claims it's, a, it's, a, it's an attack by, by, a, by Poland. Uh... This doesn't happen. <laughs> Basically, Germany like totally invades the mess out of Poland. Uh, Britain and France declare war on September 3rd, two days afterwards. But remember, it takes a while to mobilize. Uh, they're hoping that Germany believes that their armies are still stronger and that Germany would back away. Uh, remember, it does take a while to mobilize an army. Generally, people are not ready to fight at the drop of a hat. Uh, Germany does not pull out. Uh, in fact, it murders. They murder about two million Poles. Uh, likewise, Russia takes those three countries. They also take Eastern Poland, which was promised to them as part of the uh, agreement. In response to this, uh, FDR reaffirms neutrality. He says, "You know, we're going to be neutral, but we're also we're also going to take to account th- uh, facts." Which is, he's pretty much saying, we're going to be at war with Germany sooner rather than later because Germany's crazy. Uh, throughout World War II, I'm going to be saying this quite a bit, Germany was always the real threat. Uh, we'll talk about that later. But Germany's always a real threat. 
Still, he does revise the Neutrality Act in 39 to allow Britain and France to, supply, to buy military supplies. Uh, the idea is basically U.S. is going to supply the Allies, it's going to lead to a lengthy war, uh, Hitler doesn't have a ton of natural resources, and basically the longer the war goes on, uh, the less resources Germany's going to have. This allows for Germany to, be, to lose, whereas the U.S. does not really use that much military. Uh, Japan and Italy are barely on their radar. Really, they, they really aren't. I mean, yeah, the U.S. knows what's going on in China, they think it's pretty pretty localized, Italy's farting around in Ethiopia and North Africa. They're, they're not a real threat to anybody. However, this doesn't really last too long thanks to the Blitzkrieg. Uh, if you go over one more, this is a storm in Europe. Now, Germany starts fighting really quickly and taking over several countries at ludicrous spree, speed in the spring of 1940. Uh, Hitler had been biding his time over the winter of 39, you know, sp early spring of 40, uh, it's it's crazy, and what Hitler is doing here is he is violating one of the basic basic rules of warfare. Uh, this is something like ancient rules of warfare, which is you don't go further than your supply lines. All right, um, armies march on their stomach is something Napoleon once famously said, and your your army dudes can move a lot faster than supplies. Um, Armies aren't just guys with guns or weapons. You also have, like, support staff, cooks, uh, mechanics, nurses, doctors, things like that. And they generally don't move as fast. Also, more importantly, you need to be resupplied. And you don't want to move faster than your supplies. Now, what Bl Hitler's doing in the Blitzkrieg is he is going faster than his supply lines. Now, this is a very daring strategy. Because if you are able to do this, yes, you can attack very quickly, but you set yourself up for a pincer attack. If, if whoever you're fighting against can even do a basic defense, uh, they can cut you off and surround you almost immediately. So the whole deal with a Blitzkrieg is you want to fight them so fast that their defenses can't really, can't really come up in first, and you're outdoing your supply lines. It's a huge gambit. It's a huge gambit. Also, Blitzkrieg... Um, yeah, all right, fine, uh... Here's a little bit of German for you. Uh, Blitz means, well, Krieg means war. Uh, Krieg, war. Uh, Blitz means lightning. Lightning. So lightning war. Quick war. Uh, for instance, Santa's reindeer. This is probably the only thing you're going to remember from this podcast, and let alone this class. You know, uh, Santa's reindeer, Donder and Blitzen. Um, Donder and Blitzen. That is Donner and Blitzen in, in English and German, Donder and Blitzen. Their names are literally thunder and lightning in German. Thunder and lightning. Now, the, the speed at which countries are falling under the Blitzkrieg is crazy. Uh, Denmark falls within a day. Norway lasts a few weeks. Uh, by May 10th, Belgium, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands are all invaded. And when the Germans have to finally, you know, refuel and supply, uh, the British try to save the British and uh, Belgian armies. That doesn't go very well. Uh, the British are actually forced to retreat at Dunkirk, uh, there's a movie that came out a couple years ago. I'm not going to talk too much about it, but there's Dunkirk. Now, Germany and France do share a border. And Germany has been threatening to invade for a while. So Germany made this crazy imaginary line. It's one of the most heavily defended borders in human history. Uh, the problem is Germany doesn't invade that way. They go through Belgium like they did in World War I. Uh, France and Belgium have pretty stable relations, and so France doesn't have a very strong border with Belgium, 
and Germany invades France through that. Uh, Germany is just crazy quick in France. Crazy, crazy, crazy quick? No, crazy quick. Uh, they take over France on June 14th, 1940. Uh, France surrenders eight days later. And they do it in the same rail car where Germany was forced to surrender to World War I. This is loaded with symbolism. Germany, remember one of the reasons they get involved in all this is they feel that they were slighted because of World War I, you know, the Treaty of Versailles. They are going through this. They're going to make this, you know, they're going to they're gonna rectify all the wrongs they claim. Now Hitler tells Mussolini, who's around but hasn't really done much since Ethiopia, that the war's over. War's won. Uh, the fall of Britain's only a matter of time. Remember, Britain has kind of gone with its tail between its legs back to England. Um... Hitler knows as soon as Britain invades, he can take them out. He's got the strongest land army. Yeah, he's you know has to resupply, but he's crushed pretty much all of Western Europe. Pretty much all of Western Europe is either him or his allies. You know, I mean, yes, Franco's in Spain. That's his ally. Italy's Mussolini, his ally, and he's not allies with with um, with Stalin, but he's got a non-aggression pact going on. Now, America is horrified. America is horrified by what Germany did and knows despite their defiance, Britain cannot last forever. The problem is that the U.S., because of the Depression and also World War I, has really decreased its military. It never really felt the need to rebuild. Uh, the U.S., for most of its history, until modern times, really hasn't liked having a standing army. I mean, yes, we have some military. We have the National Guard. We have a bare-bones military, uh, military you know, mechanization in place. But by and large, the United States didn't like having a large military. Now, the U.S., part of the reasons we do that is because the U.S. has the oceans. We have the Atlantic Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, which border us to the east and west, and uh, oceans are really good for defense. Uh, it's very hard to mount an invasion over the ocean, particularly when you're that far away. Likewise, the U.S. is remarkable in that we only have two borders, and they're both very stable. Uh, we haven't had a war with Canada since, like, 1812, and we haven't had a war with Mexico since, like, the 1830s. So we've had, yes, I know Pancho Villa did his stuff a couple classes ago, but that doesn't really count. That was in the Mexican Army in videos. It was just crazy Pancho Villa. So the U.S. is looking actually pretty vulnerable. If the Germans were to attack the U.S. would probably be taken out pretty quick because we didn't have a ton of defense. Yes, it's a large landmass, but we don't have a ton of defense. Uh, in 1939, the U.S. has the 16th largest army in the world behind Romania. That's right, the great military power, Romania, which is like a fraction of the size and a fraction of the population. So the U.S. is looking vulnerable, and FDR knows if the Germans ever do attack, which, okay, sidebar real quick. Okay, I'm going to talk a lot about how FDR is afraid of the Germans' attack and how Germans are the main threat here. In reality, there was almost no chance that the Germans would attack the United States. Uh, if you look at the German battle plans, if you look at their even their most ambitious military strategies... They did not think about invading the U.S. mainland. Neither, neither did the Japanese, to be honest. Neither Japan nor uh, Germany was ever seriously interested in invading the U.S. mainland. It would just be too much resources. It's way too big of a space. They didn't really need to do that. They didn't really want it. So, sorry to all your Man of the High Castle shows, but it... 
I'm not going to say it's not going to happen because, you know, alternative history is alternative history. But Germany had no real law idea of doing it. So FDR calls for a permanent military bake, uh, ba- uh, bake up, build up, back up, build up, sorry, build up. FDR says we need to build up the military just in case there's a German attack. Maybe it's good for the economy. You know, we're, we're, we're building bases. We're doing stuff like that. It's good for the economy. So most Americans are a little hesitant. Um, there are people who say we don't need to be doing this because, you know, it's America. However, that kind of, uh, it's not too, too much. Uh, there's also a very top-secret organization uh, to build up an atomic bomb. Uh, Albert Einstein flees from Germany. Uh, Einstein's a Jew. He comes to America. It's like, hey, uh, the Germans are building this like top-secret weapon. It's bad, y'all. It's bad. It can be the most destructive weapon in human history. Uh, but I can help you help you with it. This is when the Manhattan Project gets started, even before the U.S. is officially in the war. Uh, their main plan is to make sure they do it before Germany does. So in case the Germans ever do get it, America has one as well. Also, the main goal for the Manhattan Project, once the war gets started, is to drop it on Berlin. Uh, Germany is a real threat. They're afraid of it. Uh, I do need to mention this. This is a massive secret. It's a massive secret. Now, something that also begins in 1940 is the London Blitz. In the latter part of 1940, Hitler starts trying to bomb London. Well, he wants to bomb the uh, British Air Force. The Royal Air Force is Hitler's main concern. Uh, Hitler is not really seriously thinking about invading England quite yet. Uh, However, he does want to disable their air force. The idea being that as long as Britain's on an island and it's very hard for armies to march over the ocean, uh, Britain's kind of isolated, and so basically Germany's got the Luftwaffe, which is a pretty good air force. They want to start bombing England. They want to bomb its facilities. Now, weirdly enough, uh, Germans' first goal is the airfields. And they find out pretty quick that the British are able to shoot them down pretty easily. Uh, turns out the British have radar. The British have radar, and the Germans don't know the British have radar. And so the Germans are able to figure out, um, wow, our ships are getting, our, our planes are getting shot down pretty quickly. It's actually kind of funny because the British came up with this like, oh, well, the reason why we are able to see that is because uh, British eat a lot of carrots. And everybody knows carrots improve your eyesight. Total urban legend. And the Germans are like, oh, maybe, maybe, yeah, I've heard that. Uh, carrots improve your eyesight. Uh, it's a lie. It's a, it's a lie to cover up for radar. So if your parents ever tell you, hey, you know, carrots are good for your eyesight, you'd be like, that's actually British propaganda against the Germans. So the Luftwaffe decides to change targets. They can't get the military targets because they're too well defended. They want to go for psychological targets. They want to go to demoralization uh, targets. And the main one is London. London is the main city in England. By the way, England itself is about the size of Alabama. It's not a very large landmass, large population. London's the main city. And so the British are being attacked pretty much every night by the German Luftwaffe, dropping bombs all over London. And they're not just bombing military targets. They're bombing, like, psychological targets. They, they get, like, St. Paul's Cathedral. Um, they, they don't drop it on Buckingham Palace, which is probably for the best, because that would... It's a fine line when you're ever trying to kill morale. Like, if you drop it on Buckingham Palace and kill the king, like, that might make the British more upset and less likely to surrender. But if you get, like, targets like, you know, 
churches or things like that, it, it can demoralize. So the British are resilient, even with major cities attacked. It's not just London. They hit Manchester and other major cities. Uh, they also shoot down a ton of German planes. Radar is working pretty well for them. And uh, shockingly, Hitler actually has to postpone his invasion of Britain. Still, Hitler's not too upset because he knows whenever Britain invades uh, the mainland, he believes the war's over. He's going to win because he believes he can take over Britain. Now, thanks to success, thanks to the success of defending for the Blitz, uh, FDR changes, changes plans. If it, if it looked like England was going to lose, FDR was not going to put in too much um, supplies for England. But now this changes. Uh, he allows for the British to have several, quote-unquote, overaged U.S. destroyers. He says the, US, the, uh, the British need ships. We're going to give them old Navy boats. They're not really that old. In exchange for the U.S. being able to build naval bases in British Caribbean islands. This is also a bit of a misnomer because uh, America's been building those bases for quite a while now. Now, also, uh, FDR does sign in September of 1940 the first peacetime draft in U.S. history. The first peacetime draft. Now, this is kind of an interesting bit, because the U.S. has had drafts before, but not in peacetime. It allows, it, it says all young men between the ages of 21 and 35 have to be drafted. Now, this upsets a lot of American isolationists. Remember, most of the country is isolationist. They feel that the Nazis are no real danger to the U.S. They feel that the Nazis are no real danger to the U.S. Yes, they're distasteful. Yes, nobody likes that Hitler guy very much. But they're afraid of, you know, an actual war. Now, there are some actual pro-German Nazis in the U.S. Uh, they hold rallies in places like Madison Square Garden. If you Google Na Madison Square Garden Nazi rally, you're going to see a Nazi rally in Madison Square Garden. Uh, this actually does happen. Uh, kind of the American Ferris people, uh, they they claim like George Washington's, like Hitler, or Hitler's the George Washington of Germany. Uh, you know, the Germans are no real threat. They're just doing what America did. Array for Germany. Uh, this is a smallish number. Uh, you know, there's a show coming out. I forget what it's called. Talking about Charles Lindbergh being a Nazi sympathizer. Uh, he was he was a Nazi sympathizer. Even he even has like illegitimate children with some Germans after the war. So there, not a lot of people are like hooray for Hitler, but a lot of them are just like we should stay out of this war. But you do have some honestly got straight up Nazis. But even the isolationists are like, look, it's late 1940 by all the time this is happening. I mean, FDR signs the draft in September of 1940. November of 1940 is coming up. And that's a presidential election. And they say, you know what? FDR can't run for a third term. Uh, the new Republican president is going to dismantle the draft as soon as he's elected. It's no big deal. Spoiler FDR runs for a third term. Uh, the Republicans nominate Vindo Vilke. Uh, if you watch old Looney Tunes cartoons, you're going to hear like, you know, my Vindo Vilke. It's just a fun name. Vindo Vilke. Uh... Wendell Wilkie has voted for, Republic, for Roosevelt twice and had been a Democrat until 1938. 
that's not exactly a ringing endorsement for the Republican Party in this time period. Is the fact that Wendell Wilkie, the guy who's running for president for the Republican, willingly admits, I voted for Roosevelt two times, and I was a Democrat until two years ago. Uh, now, the Democrats pick FDR, who technically could run for president as many times as he wanted. Uh, the tradition set by Washington of two terms was, at that time, just a tradition. It's only a tradition to run for two terms. It was not in the Constitution. So even though, you know, FDR wasn't barred from doing it, nobody really expected him to do it. Now, Vindo Vilke says that FDR is a warmonger. He says that he's going to send American boys to die in a foreign war. And FDR responds, quote, I won't be sending your boys to any foreign wars. Spoiler alert, a year later, he totally does. And the country decides to go with FDR. Uh, it's a little bit unprecedented, but the idea being, hey, honestly, the Republicans are not really nominating the strongest candidate against FDR because they're nominating FDR light, a guy who says, I love FDR, but he shouldn't run again. So now in his third term as president, FDR, FDR passes the Lend-Lease deal. Uh, the Lend-Lease deal allows the president to lend or lease military equipment to any country whose defense is vital to the defense of the United States. So we're no longer talking about selling. We're lending them or leasing them. We're pretty much letting them borrow stuff with promise of money later, which is something that uh, FDR said the country would not do in his earlier acts. Now he changes. Now he uses the world's worst metaphor to describe what he's doing. FDR says, if your neighbor's house is burning... Would you charge him for use of your water hose to put it out? No, you would let him borrow the hose, and then after the fire is out, then he could pay you. To which I'm like, you're the worst neighbor of all time if you charge your neighbor to use your hose to put out a fire and then make him pay later after he's trying to get his life together. But whatever, it's an analogy. Uh, meanwhile, Germany is still taking stuff over who, uh, as is Italy, Italy is able to take over Libya, only with German help. Uh, the Germans also get the British to pull out of Egypt. So pretty much all of North Africa is, is taken over by um, Egypt, by, by, uh, by Germany. Also in April, Germany takes over Yugoslavia and Greece, Hungary, Romania, and Bulgaria fall shortly thereafter. So now it's looking like Hitler is taking East, uh, East Europe. It looks pretty dire. It looks like Europe is uh, Hitler is unstoppable to take over all of Europe. The U.S. claims to be the arsenal of democracy, but it's taken a while to get everything up plant. Unless Hitler does something really stupid, really stupid, Hitler's going to win. Now, as you can see by the next headline on the slide, Hitler finally does something stupid. He makes a really dumb mistake. He decides to invade Russia in June... Of 1941, June 22nd, 1941, Hitler invades Russia. Why? Eh, mainly to get resources. Uh, Hitler does not have a ton of resources. Uh, West Russia has a ton of resources. He thinks it can take it out pretty easily. Also, he has some verbiage about we got to fight against communism. This was a bad mistake because in doing this, Hitler pisses off Stalin who is not somebody you want to piss off. If this class was in lecture right now, I would flip the table. I do that every year. I flip a table and I think like Stalin and Scream. I'm not going to do that because it might scare my dog and they'll be barking. 
So, but just pretend I'm like, Rawr, I'm Stalin, I'm angry. Because he was. Stalin goes scorched earth. Basically, Stalin says, if you're retreating, which, by the way, he does not want you to retreat, but if you're a Russian retreating, burn everything behind you. Burn your farm, burn your cow, burn your crops. Yes, Hitler might be able to take over our land, but he gets nothing. Remember, Hitler's doing this to get resources. So Hitler, he's, he's hoping to live off the land as he invades. It's something armies have done since time immemorial. He can't do that because Stalin is going scorched earth. Now, the Germans do make it pretty far at first. Uh, they capture about three million Russians. Problem is, although the Russians might lack for resources, especially if they're burning everything, they don't lack for people. And Stalin decides to send everybody against Germany. Any casualty numbers are acceptable. Now, over the course of the war, Russia has the worst casualty numbers of the entire war. Uh, spoiler alert. About 20 million Russian soldiers die. About 5 million Russian civilians die. Uh, that's just the numbers we know. There's no telling how many Russians that Stalin killed. Uh, we know that Stalin um, executed 8,000 civilians during the Battle of Moscow for quote-unquote cowardice. Not even soldiers. He's executing civilians. <coughs> I would really hate to be a Russian soldier during this time period because, ye gods, you got Hitler on one side and Stalin behind you. Both are prone to kill. Now, Churchill sees this. He's like, oh, wait a minute. Hitler's busy with Stalin... If I support Stalin, maybe Hitler won't attack us. Because if Germany is busy with Russia, they can't attack Britain. FDR's like, wait a minute, this is a great idea. If we give Stalin stuff, he can fight Germany. He can do all this. Yes, he's a crazy homicidal genocidal maniac, but he's fighting another homicidal genocidal maniac. We should totally support that guy. Nobody really likes Stalin. Nobody really trusts Stalin. But hey, he's doing a good job of fighting your army, of fighting your battles for you. I don't know. It's like if you you maybe seen those movies where you have like the crazy dude at the bar who nobody trusts, but he's good in a bar fight. So you're like, you know what? I'll keep buying drinks for this guy because he's crazy. That's Stalin. Now Stalin also has friends for the first time in his life because he's like, wait a minute, they're not trying to take over the Soviet Union. They're not Trotsky. You know, I can somewhat trust them. They're giving me supplies. Stalin's just angry. And he's like, they're giving me stuff. So in August of 1941, FDR and Churchill meet in secret to form what's called the Atlantic Charter. Uh, it promises once Nazism is defeated, they make some sort of cool league of nations, like for, for all the cool countries. It's a real league of nations. Uh, it's some predecessor to the UN. It's going to be the UN. Uh, other countries agree, including Russia. Stalin feels a little, little out of sorts for not being invited, but he gets it. There's a war going on. He's staying busy. Now, it looks like FDR is getting closer and closer to a war with Germany. Remember, that's the main threat. But they don't have a reason uh, good enough to appease the isolationist as to why they're getting involved. Luckily for FDR, he does not need to make up a reason. Um, Japan gives him one. <laughs> Uh, Japan had been taking over all sorts of islands of the Pacific for a while, and the U.S. is mainly concerned that they're going to make a move against the Philippines. That's the main issue. Remember, the U.S. is still in control of the Philippines in this time period. The Philippines are very close to China. It's our, one of our main trading ports. And so 
the U.S. is afraid that Japan is going to make a move towards the Philippines. Japan's been taking over islands. Uh, islands are very important in the Pacific because there's not a lot of land, and you need space for airfields and also for fuel and supplies. Uh, Japan has already had a lot of its assets and uh, stuff frozen in Germany, like bank accounts. Sorry, uh, frozen in the U.S., frozen in the U.S. Uh, Japan had uh, bank accounts in the U.S., um, because the U.S. was still the most stable during the, during the Depression. But nobody really considers them much of a threat. Germany's the real threat. And the U.S. even states, hey, Japan, we're willing to trade with you. Uh, you can trade with us for resources. If you want land, if you want oil, not land, if you want, like, wood, if you want oil, you can do that, uh, assuming that you pull out of China and French Indochina. Uh, Indochina is modern-day uh, Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. Now, the Japanese Prime Minister, Kano, who actually prefers democracy, he's not Tojo, Tojo's a foreign minister, uh, Kano actually is really wants a deal. He wants a deal, however, Tojo and other than the government tell him not to. So Kano's like, man, I want this. Uh, Japan feels pressured. Now, let me, let me, let me also iterate this quite a bit. Japan knows they can't win a long war with the U.S. The U.S. just has too much natural resources. Uh, the United States, if you don't know, is about the size of a continent. It's about the size, it's most of the North American continent. It's got a lot of different biomes, a lot of different natural resources. But the idea is, if they can make a strong move against the U.S., a knockout punch, if you will, if they can make it so it's going to take the U.S. a long time to rebuild... And Japan could get so entrenched in the Pacific, the U.S. would negotiate and not get involved in a war. Japan does not want a long war with the U.S. They have that war with China they're dealing with. Now, the Japan has started doing things like pulling their diplomats out of their embassies, burning their documents. It's looking pretty evident that something's about to happen with Japan and the United States. And everybody assumes it's going to be in the Philippines. The surprise is, it's not in the Philippines. On December 7th, a Sunday morning, which, by the way, the Sunday morning truce is about as old as time itself. Like, nobody does anything on a Sunday morning. You, you go to church or you sleep in. That's everything anybody ever does on a Sunday morning. Maybe you go to brunch. But if somebody's like, hey, dude, let's have a work meeting at 9 a.m. Sunday morning, you'd be like, no, it's a Sunday. You don't do that. So early in the morning, the Japanese attack Pearl Harbor. Now, Pearl Harbor is a pretty major refueling station. It's a port. Uh, it's in Hawaii, which is not a U.S. state in this time period. It's a territory. It's a U.S. territory. And the idea is the Japanese want to destroy the U.S. carrier groups. There's three carrier groups based in Pearl Harbor. Uh, thankfully for the U.S., the Japanese don't get any of them. Two of them are out of season maneuvers. One of them is in San Diego getting repaired. And the Japanese also miss the fuel reserves. Now, the Japanese do attack some stuff. They do get some airfields. They do get some battleships. Uh, they also get other shipyards. They don't get the fuel. They don't get the carriers. That's the main deal. We're going to talk about carriers later when we talk about the actual war, but carriers are very important for World War II. This attack was designed to demoralize the United States. Uh, it doesn't. It doesn't demoralize at all. Uh, if you go over one slide, I'm not going to tell you the exact numbers. Who cares? Because it was getting kind of long. Uh, there are, you know, 
ships are sunk, people died. I'm not trying to make light of it, but it's a lot, not as bad as it could be. It's not as bad as it could be. And instead of demoralizing the U.S., it just really, really pisses off the U.S., and including the isolationist. Uh, the next day on December 8th, FDR asks for a declaration of war against Japan. He gives a speech of, you know, this is a date that will live forever in infamy. And he gets a declaration of war. I think only one person abstained or voted against it. But the real fear, the real fear, is how do we parlay this into a war with Germany? Because Germany is still the main threat. Germany is still the main threat. Yes, Japan has attacked the U.S., and there's a lot of support for fighting the U.S., but the main issue is how do we get Germany? How does FDR parlay this into fighting against Germany? How can FDR convince Congress to declare war against Germany? Thankfully, Hitler does the U.S. a solid about a day or two later and does, does, that, for, does that for him. Uh, a day or two later, Hitler declares war on the U.S., Basically because of Germany, uh, because of Japan. Hitler declares war on the U.S. The U.S. can now declare war on Germany because they've done the same. In fact, even in his declaration of war, Hitler can't help but be a little white supremacist, be a little uh, racist. He says that the, the U.S. was half Judaized and half Negrofied and says he does not consider the United States a threat. I, I guess he's trying to get his butt kicked because uh, that's not a great thing to say to the U.S., and with that, we're at the beginning of World War II. Now, uh, now that you finish this, I will let you know you got a quiz. If you look, quiz four is up. Quiz four is up. So I hope you all have a good one with this. Have a good time. Uh, next class, I'm going to try to do World War II. It's probably going to be split into two because this one looks pretty long already. So anyway, uh, take your quiz, everybody. Take your quiz. Uh, it's on today's lecture and the one from last time. There are sirens in the background. That's crazy, but I hope everything is okay. All right, this is Dr. Tully. Have a good one.